Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 21st, 2019, and my guest is economist and author Arthur Brooks of Harvard University. Until recently, he was the president of the American Enterprise Institute. His latest book and the topic of today's episode is Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Arthur, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. It's great to be with you, and congratulations on such a great show. Oh, thanks. Uh, what, is the, what do you mean by the culture of contempt? It's a great phrase. Well, when I started doing work on political polarization and political bitterness, I thought the problem was anger because people certainly act like they're being angry with each other a lot. But I was clued in by somebody that I admire a lot. He's a social psychologist, John Gottman, probably the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. He has the, the Gottman Marriage Laboratory in, in, in Seattle. And he, he says that the problem in marriages when you're going to divorce is not anger. Anger is a hot emotion. It's a hot cognition that's says, I, I care what you think. It's when you take anger and mix it with disgust, it turns cold and it, it, it turns people who love each other into enemies. And, and that's uh, anger plus disgust is the, what Schopenhauer called the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. And that's contempt. And when you get the habit of contempt, it's a, it's a kind of a, a communications tick. When you talk to other people as if they were worthless, their ideas were worthless, and hence that they are worthless people, you will drive them apart. That, that habit, when it spreads around a culture, can become what I call the culture of contempt, which I believe is what we're suffering from in America today. You mentioned the problem of eye-rolling, and we've talked about that before in this program. It's really bad for marriage, and it's very destructive to uh, constructive political conversation. Absolutely. Uh, Eye-rolling is one of the the physical signs that you have contempt for another person. Uh, Sarcasm, derision, dismissiveness, all these things tell other people that you think that what they have to say is worthless, and and hence that you think that the person is worthless. It's kind of incredible because most people who treat each other with contempt, they don't hate the other person. They're just in the habit of behaving that way. So John Gottman will often point out that, that couples can be brought back together because they actually love each other. They just are weirdly acting as if they hated each other and reacting to that the contempt of the other with contempt of their own. So you have to break that cycle. And so this is one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book and in my research these days is how we can build community, how we can we can break cycles of bad communications habits in American politics. And one of the challenges of that and one of the struggles I have with you know I have similar feelings as you do about our culture and similar recommendations to what we might do about it. Uh, part of the problem is um, is that tick, that tick of contempt, of eye rolling, that habit we get into. Uh, after a while, we come to enjoy it. Uh, yeah. In my experience, uh, we we become a little bit addicted to the superiority it 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 engenders in ourselves, our feeling of self worth because we're better than the people around us or those at least who disagree with us. Uh, how do you fight that, and how do you uh, encourage people to break that habit. That's a really adroit observation. And by the way, what you personally have written about this and, and about love and warm heartedness has been very moving 
it's you know people don't think that you guys like us economists that we actually have you know hearts, hearts and souls yeah, yeah I'm try I'm trying <laughs> but you've written really well about this and <laughs> and, and and the problem is that when i say there's a habit of expressing contempt that is very that is very close uh, psychologically to the phenomenon of addiction. That's the reason that people use addiction and habits synonymously. Anytime there's an addiction or virtually any addiction that we have, whether it's behaviorally or to anything chemical, it involves a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Uh, dopamine is produced and it's a, it's a, it's very rewarding to get a little shot of dopamine. So you light a cigarette, you get dopamine. You take a you know, drink, you get dopamine. When you treat somebody with contempt and feel like you are right, you get dopamine too. It, it's kind of amazing how ubiquitous dopamine is in our learned behavior that reinforces rewards. It's involved in a, there's a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens that, that imprints a, a habitual behavior. But the neurotransmitter that is, that is occurring with it is dopamine. So for sure, when we have a habit of doing it, it gives us a little reward. The reward is, 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 is reinforced neurochemically, and th so therefore it gets harder and harder to get out of that cycle. The thing that we need to keep in mind is that with most things that, that give us a little bit of dopamine, hence a little bit of satisfaction, th that the reward is very different in the short run as it is in the long run. There's nobody who says, you know what I love? I just love being addicted to cigarette smoking. I mean, it's just people don't talk that way because they wish they weren't smokers, even though they get a reward and keep doing it in the short run. It's what you and I as economists, we talk about discount problems or even hyperbolic discounting in which it's very, very hard to break habits because the discount rate just balloons out as you get further and further away because of the nature of how habitual behavior works. And that's certainly the case in the way that we talk to each other as well. So the key, the key thing to keep in mind, there's a sort of a cognitive satisfaction that comes along with being right. There's a little shot of dopamine that you get, sort of like when you smoke a cigarette, when you feel like you're right and you vanquish your opponent, you show that somebody else is wrong and maybe even stupid and evil. <laughs> but the problem with that is that the satisfaction that you get in the near term is inconsistent with that which you get in the long term. It's a problem that we as economists wonkishly referred to as a hyperbolic discounting rate. And the only way that you can beat your tendency to, to get short-term satisfactions is to remember the long-term goal that you have. Love and reconciliation in the long-term are much, much more rewarding than feeling like your interlocutor is a moron in the short-term. Yeah, it's a, tough, um, it's a tough transition. I like to say, uh, and I don't know if this is helpful, but I say it a lot, uh, try to get pleasure from saying, I don't know. Hmm. And in a, as a way of, of reducing um, overconfidence and, and hubris and confirmation bias. And I, I say that actually with, until you just gave me that way of thinking about it. I, I never really think about it much other than just saying, you ought to try that. It, you'll come to like it if you can work on that habit. The problem is, is what you've just pointed out, which is, uh, but it's really fun to pretend that you do know. <laughs> yeah, and, no, that's and, right. And, and it takes a while. It's an acquired habit to to enjoy saying I don't know. It's sort of like um, I would say it's a little like beer. Uh, at first, it seems bitter, but you'll you'll come to like it. And you and I can exhort people to try it. Eventually, you'll you'll be a better person and you'll enjoy that. And I think that's um, easy advice to give and harder advice to take. And let me let me give a a personal example. Uh, I struggle with snacks during the middle of the day. I work at home, and I have um, – if I have, say, peanuts or almonds around, I'll eat way too many of them. 
So one way to deal with it is just don't have them around. Okay. Right. That, that's it works, but it it doesn't. It, it tends to just force me into some other snack. Uh, but lately, I've gotten into a way of uh, of keeping track of what I eat on an app on my phone, and now I get enjoyment from not snacking. So mm. far, I'm I'm a few weeks into it. My body says. Uh, and Econ Talk listeners are going to be interested in this because we've talked a lot here about weight loss and Gary Taubes. And folks, we're going to come back to this. Don't worry. Not today, down the road. But by telling myself, by giving myself a reward, a mental reward of I uh, am not snacking today, it's um, I'm changing my sort of inner, my dopamine meter. And I don't know yep. if that's possible to do in these more uh, less physical areas of, say, arrogance or contempt, but I think there's maybe something there. There really is. And so this is what people who study habit talk about when they, when, when they, they speak of, of reprogramming your nucleus accumbens, the part of the brain that reinforces habitual behavior. The way that the nucleus accumbens, it's a very ancient part of the brain. It's about the size of the end of your pinky finger, very deep in your brain. It was evolved at least, at least 500,000 years before uh, your prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that makes executive decisions and conscious decisions. And what happens is that you you do something that gives you a little reward. It's programmed into your nucleus accumbens, and you start to do it automatically. And the more you do it, the harder it is to break. Now, the reason that's important is because if you reprogram your nucleus accumbens by substituting one behavior, rewarding behavior for the other, you can break bad habits. And that's exactly what you're talking about. So you want a handful of peanuts, not good for you. It makes you fat. It ruins your appetite for dinner. You know, that's not good. So you get something else, which is a reward, a psychic reward. Reward is reward. It's fine from your phone. It, it might not be at quite as rewarding at the very beginning, but it'll take on more rewarding characteristics as you start to see that not eating the peanuts is doing good things for you. Well, the same thing is true when we're talking about our political discourse. It's rewarding to say, you know, on Twitter and to own own the libs or the conservatives or whatever you're doing on, on Twitter. On the other hand, you, you if you substitute it for another behavior, which the Dalai Lama talks about, is when you feel contempt, you should actually react with warm-heartedness. This is what he's saying. Stop when you're stimulated. Stop. Consider your response. Choose a response that you want and get a reward from it. What you find is it's actually quite incredible. I, I tell audiences all the time, and this is really one of the key things I, I recommend in my book, is when you feel stimulated to behave contemptuously, which is almost always because somebody has treated you with contempt, yep. stop, decide, sort of what your mother said, you know, count to 10. But the Dalai Lama is, is, talks about increasing the distance between stimulus and response. And then choose something that you actually like better. And you'll find it's incredibly rewarding. Because one of the things that you just talked about, that you're talking sort of obliquely about the satisfaction and pleasure that comes from humility. Yep. That's when you're saying, I don't know. And, and to be persuasive is great. By the way, nobody has ever been persuaded in history with insults. So if you want to be more persuadable, you know, then contempt is the wrong way of going about it. It's unproductive. But it's something intensely satisfying about being persuadable as well. And to do that, you actually need to not respond ever with contempt because you will be blocked. Uh, do you meditate? Mm-hmm. I do. I'm a, I'm a practicing Catholic and, and I have a a practice of Catholic meditation that I have engaged in for a long, long time. And I've gotten most of my technique from studying with Hindu and Buddhist masters in India. Yeah. I I do Jewish meditation also with some Buddhist influence. There's a lot of Jewish 
influence of meditation too. It's just not as as well known. But in my experience, that has helped me find that gap between stimulus and response. Although it could just be because I'm getting older. <laughs> uh, but I but I do find uh, incredibly satisfying not to respond to contempt with contempt. And I wonder how much of that is just that I'm reveling in my self control and my mm. I'm grasping at the at the desire to think I'm better at meditating and I don't know, Russ. I think I don't know. I think that I think that we're made for love. That people want love and people want to express love. And I think it's actually unsatisfying for us, importantly unsatisfying for us to to be doing something that's so bad for the soulful health. To, to be treating other people with contempt. And it, whereas the satisfaction is minor, it is very much like smoking a cigarette. It's not going to give you any satisfaction you know, 10 minutes from now. It's just basically satisfying the desire in the meantime. On the other hand, if you can do something where you have the self-control, but also that gives you the payoff and something that's even that much more important than the, the, the health of your lungs is the love that you have for other people. I think that we're living up to how we're made and who we're supposed to be in doing that. And that gives us a, an equilibrium that you can't get any other way. I like to think you're right. Not sure. We'll come back <laughs> maybe and talk about that later. Uh, I will just make the point that when I have the, and it's a physical urge to grab a handful of peanuts, uh, and I say to myself, this is not going to make me happy. In a minute after I finish some, I'll want some more. And Tomorrow morning when I'm on the scale or a week from now, I'll regret it. It doesn't help so much. Uh, it's really hard to change your mind with your mind that way, reasoning that this uh, insult is actually a sign of a person's, say, insecurity uh, about their argument in a political debate in the moment is, is such a hard thing to rationally decide. You really have to build a different habit, go down a different path, and— um, whether it's embracing love or whether it's embracing humility or whatever it is, it's just, it's hard to think yourself out of those problems in my experience. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes you have to lash yourself to the mast and, uh, yeah. and you know, well, that's, so it's one don't of the buy the peanuts. Where, yeah. Well, don't <laughs> buy the peanuts, but another way to do it is if you, you basically have a huge drinking problem, then you can put on Twitter that you've joined AA. Yeah. And, and next time you, if you ever post a, your picture of yourself on, on, social media holding a drink, you man, you're going to hear about it. Um, in, in my case or your case, Russ, I mean, when you and I write a book, people read it. I mean, it's amazing to have the incredible blessing to be able to write a book that could become a bestseller. And so if you basically say, I'm committing myself to being the person who talks about love and reconciliation in the face of contempt, I mean, trust me, if I do something where I'm, I'm, I'm behaving horribly toward another person, I'm, I'm popping off on social media. I'm saying on Twitter that somebody's a complete moron. I mean, I'm, I'm going to look like the biggest hypocrite in the world. And writing this book has been one of my commitments to myself. That's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean by coercive leadership? So one of the people that I admire the most and, and what I teach at Harvard is, is leadership in both the Kennedy School and the Business School. And really one of the great recent thinkers and leaders on leadership is a, a psychologist at Harvard named Daniel Goldman. And he, he wrote a uh, paper in 2000. Uh, has a, a bunch of research on it, but also wrote for the Harvard Business Review for a more popular audience on the a, a paper called Leadership That Gets Results, where he has a, a sample of 4,000 CEOs uh, in the United States. And he uses 
uh, you know, factor analysis, which I know you and I as economists that we don't do that very much or not sure we believe in it, but it has some, <laughs> it has some use in studies in, show that it, that it works, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, exactly right. No, it's like the, the observations are not IID, but it still kind of works. So in, in, in factor analysis, um, he, this is a technique for clustering patterns and finding patterns in the data. And among these 4,000 CEOs, he finds there's six basic types of leaders. They go from best to worst. The worst are coercive leaders. These are people that say it's the sort of my way or the highway. They're extreme. They can be extremely effective in the nor- in the in the short term because they're bullies and they can get immediate compliance in the face of a crisis. On the other hand, in the long term, they almost always fail because people hate bullies and they don't like to be coerced. And, you know, this has obvious implications for business, but it also has obvious implications for. For politics these days, we're in a in a in a moment of incredibly coercive leadership um, in both political parties, where people are being rewarded for belittling and bullying and saying, "If you don't do it my way, it's because you're an idiot and you're an enemy." And it you know that can work for a little while when people are really really freaked out. Let's say in the wake of the financial crisis and and the you know the polarization of our times, but in the end, it's actually not. It's not what we want, and it's ultimately, at least so far in American history, is not something that has persisted in the long run as politically successful. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical about that. I I think Steve Jobs was a pretty coercive leader and was pretty successful, but he, to some extent, might be the exception. Um, and but he motivated people in ways that you know are not appealing to me. Uh, yeah, though that's interesting, but, Russ. But it yeah, draws I mean, people to him. For other reasons, perhaps, or maybe even because of it, that they want to prove themselves, they want to earn his respect, and it's obviously hard to earn. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's I, I, I love that example, actually, because in the paper, Goldman, he says that the best leadership style, style is called authoritative leadership, not authoritarian, authoritative leadership, which is basically incredibly – vision oriented. Here's a big vision. Yeah. You're part of it. Will you join me? That fires people up and makes them feel like just incredibly motivated. And the interesting thing that Goldman says is that you can mix leadership styles. So this is exactly what you're talking about. Steve Jobs, according to all accounts, and I didn't know him, but by all accounts was a mix of authoritative and, and coercive leadership, and which is, the means that there were certain things that were hard to deal with, but other things that were irresistible at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I hate to quote movies as an example of evidence, but I, you know, having seen the movie Patton, it, it's a similar model, um, mm-hmm. you know, Jobs wanted to put a dent in the universe, and if you wanted to be on the team that was doing the denting, uh, which is an exhilarating idea, you had to play by his rules. And this, you know, Patton was going to liberate Europe from the Nazis, and wasn't a lot of fun along the way. But um, yeah. except for the outcome, so I think yeah. that's it's a different, yeah, it's a different, it's a more complicated story. Um, for sure, for sure. Ed Goldman would say that Jobs or Patton. Um, absolutely have incredible followers that are extremely loyal because of the authoritative part of their leadership. They, a coercive part comes along and gets immediate compliance and effectiveness in the short run, but in the long run, they, even they would have been more effective had they been less coercive. Yeah, that's probably true. Although, yeah, I think, it, again, it's it's pretty complicated and hard to yeah, know. But I think sure. the key point, and it's the one you bring up later in the book, is that Loyal to the cause does not mean being a robot or a pawn, and that I think what made Jobs a successful leader of Apple is that he was able to engender a huge amount of creativity from his employees, 
uh, under the, in that crucible. And yes. that crucible is not so fun. Not everybody can handle it. Most most of us can't. Um, that's why we we work at think tanks. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. yeah, one right. of the least crucible like uh, <laughs> environments there is. I know, unless you're the president, that yeah. makes it a little tricky. <laughs> that's true. It's 100 percent correct. Hard job being the president. I, I know that. I get that. I, I tell the. Um, it's an incredibly entertaining story, uh, but I think there's a deep, deep truth in it. Uh, tell the viola player story uh, about the um, the uh, viola player who uh, who's uh, comes home to find his, his house is burned down. <laughs> so this is a this is a you know, for for the listeners who don't know, I I was a professional French horn player for many years. I was uh, from the from the time I dropped out of college at 19 until I dropped back into college at. 31, I was a professional French horn player uh, in symphony orchestras, among other things. And there's a joke that all orchestra players tell that has a lot of pathos that sort of describes the relationship that that orchestra musicians have with the conductor. Um, Conductors, for those who don't know, are we used to say that some of them are evil geniuses, but all of them are evil. You know, the, these are the classic coercive leaders. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've seen them reduce grown men to tears. Horrible, horrible stuff. And so there's a, the joke is that there's a, a viola player in, in a symphony orchestra. And the viola is always the most marginalized instrument. It's hard to hear. Viola players generally start out as violinists, but they're not good enough. I mean, at least that's the, that's the stereotype. You know, I'm going to get dragged on Twitter for that. Shame and, on you. And, and shame on me. I know. It's like, so, but you respect uh, and, them. You don't have contempt for them. You pity them, actually. <laughs> I do. It's just more, it's more pity. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, what people nice. want. So this viola player, he's been just mercilessly abused by the conductor in, the, in his orchestra for 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 a, a decade. I mean, it's just terrible. He's the he's just whipped by the conductor over and over and over again. And one day he comes home from a particularly terrible rehearsal. You know, he stops by the bar on the way home. He's drowning his sorrows. And finally, when he gets home, he notices a. a police have cordoned off his house you know the police yellow tape and he goes and there's a cop standing there the black the flashing lights and he says to the police officer what happened and and he says who are you he says this is my house and he says oh you're the owner well sorry to tell you sir that there's been an incident somebody has come here burglarized your house burned it down killed your dog driven off with your family in your car he says well who did it he says that's the worst part it was the conductor of your orchestra this is long pause. Finally, the cop says, do you have any questions? And the viola player says, the maestro visited my house. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I've never heard that joke. Um, it's and, and, and I don't know if listeners will like it as much as I do, but uh, <laughs> it's really magnificent. And, and one of the reasons it's more than just um, it's not funny, actually. And the reason know, it's, it's insightful <laughs> the reason it's insightful is that it captures a part of our humanity that I think at least libertarians prefer not to think about. And I'm somewhere, uh, I'm something of a libertarian. But the idea that people enjoy uh, not being independent, they don't, uh, they might not even mind being abused because mm-hmm. they so desperately want the respect of someone uh, in power. I like to quote Adam Smith that uh, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. And we want the respect of people around us. And just that the maestro came to my house, that he paid attention to me, is makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> okay, he burned it down. but and, and I think that's a human... 
that's the dark side of, of our desire to be loved that Smith talks about, that we want, we want to be taken, you know, we want to matter. And okay, he burned the house down, but at least he burned my house down. You know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and, you know? and I think the same thing, the, the reason it's a serious story is I think in the political realm, um, people will accept outcomes and abuse from leaders they revere because he's their leader. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's right. There's also a point that when, when you're on a knife edge politically, like when countries are suffering from a lot of populist polarization, you find that it's it's bully versus bully. Uh, in a highly bullying environment, people are forced to choose one bully or the other. And you say, look, I don't necessarily love my guy, but the other guy is really dangerous and terrible. You know, he wants to take away my stuff and hurt me and hurt my family. And and so even though I don't like my bully, at least he's fighting for me. And that can be a, a, a temporary equilibrium. I, I, I hope it's not more than a temporary equilibrium because it's a really dangerous situation in, in, in politics. It leads to Op, uh, suboptimal outcomes, and and it's also extremely unstable. And um, I think that that some people might think that that sounds a little bit like what we've got going on right now. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't I don't like him, but it takes a bully to beat a bully is a standard rationalization I think for that people do uh, in the in the voting booth, and it's it's where we're headed anyway. Yeah, on both sides. Yeah, I, mean, I hear sides. Republicans and Democrats saying that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, before we go on, I, I want to take a little side trip. Because uh, recently interviewed um, David Epstein about his book Range, which makes a case for uh, non-specialization. It makes the case for trying out different things. It makes the case for how different experience enriches your your life and your and your productivity. And I'm curious, given that you were a professional musician, uh, which I think is extraordinarily rare among economists and among public policy <laughs> intellectuals. Um, obviously, you could be glad you did that for the experience itself, but you think it made you a better president of AEI, a better scholar, a better author? Was there anything productive about that in the narrower sense of the word? I think I really think that um, in in the idea economy, which rewards creativity and rewards experiences, that virtually everything is fungible. And the answer is for sure. It, what I learned as a as a French horn player, what I learned about music, the appreciation that I have for ideas and aesthetics, and also just the performance ethic that I got, was in, extremely important. Made it possible for me for to 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 get some mastery in other fields. Sometimes I feel like I, I should write a book called How to Play the French Horn, which is actually not about how to learn to play the French horn. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's it's basically, you know, all the things that I've learned. So for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. To when you're a, a professional classical musician, there are three things that you have to be comfortable with. Number one is 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 endless repetitions. It's reps. It's getting your reps again and again and again, playing the same passage over and over and over again. Because until you actually get the reps, you won't have the ballistic movements into your brain, which is to say you won't be able to bypass your your prefrontal cortex in playing music. You need to do everything automatically. It's just happening too fast. You won't get technical perfection otherwise, but that takes reps. The second is slowing everything down. If you, When you're playing a classical instrument, you're learning a piece of music to make it such that it'll sound great, 
flawlessly uh, over and over again, you need to play everything incredibly slowly, so slowly, it's the rule in classical music, that you shouldn't be able to recognize the music. If you can recognize the piece, you're playing it too quickly. And the last is is an appreciation of failure. I mean, you're, you're just going to fail a lot. You're going to fail a lot in, in before you can succeed because the, the level of technical perfection and and, and is so demanding uh, that there's just a lot of failure involved. Those are really the th- three things that have guided my my ability to to do what I do now. I mean, as a president of AEI until recently, my job was giving 175 speeches a year and and with my colleagues raising 50 million dollars a year. So it was basically like like running for the Senate and never getting elected. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the but the technical dominance from actually doing 175 speeches a year required endless repetition to make it good. It required slowing everything down until I could truly understand what I was saying till the turn of the phrase was completely clear and it was being willing to get out and fail with certain sets of ideas. In other words, playing the French horn taught me everything I needed to know to be the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Well, that's really beautiful. I, I'm going to add something now that you didn't mention and see let you reflect on it, which is um, subjugation of one's ego. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard not to have an ego when you're the president of anything. Uh, but when you're a French horn player, or a viola player, even worse. Uh, <laughs> you're, quote, only part of an ensemble most of the time. Um, your notes, your the only time you'll stand out, in fact, is when you make an error. Uh, but otherwise, you have to take satisfaction from being part of a creative whole. And, you know, academics aren't good at that, by definition. A lot of us are in the business because we like to see ourselves as the center of the universe and our work is profound and everyone else's is not as good. Uh and it's a solitary pursuit, very different from, from an orchestra. But I've suggested recently that by seeing ourselves as part of an ensemble rather than as part of uh, as a narrative where I'm the hero, which is, I think, what our ego tells us to do, by being part of an ensemble, I can have a richer interaction with other people. I can not be as likely to use them as, as objects and be more likely to relate to them in a, you know, what Martin Buber called I-thou I'm curious if if that resonates with you at all. It does. Uh, It resonates a lot, and I've reflected on it quite a bit, too. When I was in the orchestra, um, I would often think, you know, what holds us back as an ensemble? And virtually, well, there are a lot of different reasons. The biggest is when ensemble players are not thinking about the the beautiful whole that comes out, but really are only thinking about their own part. And that, that ruins the ensemble nature, ruins the cohesiveness, and it makes the music just less beautiful to do that. Conductors, the best conductors uh, throughout history, they have big egos, and, and they can, in fact, be evil geniuses, but they have a strong sense that... They know that without the orchestra members, they're just a guy waving a stick, yep. which is it, it, it. You look like an insane person. You take a, you know, the baton out on the street and do that, and you look like a lunatic. And and so they have a sense that they that the people in the ensemble have to be playing together as well. I think I've learned as much that the negative lesson from bad conductors in being the president of AEI. Um, you know, it's it's easy to you know build up your own ego when you're the president of a think tank. I mean, it's not like we're these big celebrities, but certainly as big a celebrity as an average city symphony conductor. Mm-hmm. And and to it, to say, well, you know, why AEI is great because Arthur Brooks the president. Well, that's insane. That's nonsense. Without the scholars and the staff doing their thing, I would just be a 
you know, the equivalent of a guy waving a stick in silence. And so remembering that the best conductors relied integrally on, on the, the beauty and the harmony and the egolessness of the people that were sitting in the sections that actually did the real work. That's, those were my best days as president of AEI. It just strikes me that a great conductor, and I'm thinking now, I know you're a sports fan, I'm thinking of Bill Belichick, who's a conductor of a football team, and somehow gets people to um, you know, play along and do their job. That's his, mm. that's his mantra, do your job. And uh, you know, the, the joke, not the joke, the story, which I'm sure is true, is that uh, you know, when Tom Brady would throw an interception the next week, he would, Belichick would rib or tease or needle Brady that he could get somebody who could throw the football as well as he did at Foxborough High School. And Brady was obviously thinking too much about his girlfriend or wife at the time, uh, Giselle Bunchen. And hmm. that changed the dynamic of that locker room when Brady had to take a hit, given that Brady was by far the biggest celebrity in the room. And it's just interesting how you know, Belichick at least pretends, I don't know what he thinks deep in his heart, but he pretends that it's not about him, it's about the team. And to the extent that he can inculcate that culture among the players, which is the same as the conductor's goal, uh, I don't know, you can tell me if they, how they managed to do that, uh, but then the ensemble plays better together. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I, because I, I know. You know, teach leadership at, at Harvard, and, and you know all of my metaphors teaching are no doubt going to be from either running a think tank or being in a symphony orchestra. Yeah. I guess, you know, from our own professional experiences. Yeah. But one of the things that I think is really important for leaders to remember, whether it's coaches or conductors or think tank presidents or any of us, you know, any of the people that are listening to this conversation, because everybody has leadership in their in their environment, whether it's in their family or their workplace, everybody has influence over others. The key trick is, you know, or I should let's start with really what holds back leaders, which is uh, pride and envy. You know, these deadly sins, yeah. pride and envy. It's all about you know, the me. pride. Yeah, the pride and envy of the leader really demotivates people. You know, so you can be, you, you can be effective as a coercive leader, but ultimately your downfall will be pride and, and, and envy. Well, there's a heavenly virtue that opposes these things. That's the instant antidote to envy and pride in your work, and that's admiration. You know, it's very hard to do. I mean, admiration of the the, the skills and abilities and talents, uh, the efforts of other people. This is hard. You know, you and I have been in Washington D.C. for a good part of our careers, and you know, Washington D.C. is a, is a city that doesn't admire. And this is the the big problem. I mean, to, but basically, you know, the satisfaction that comes the the deep moral satisfaction that comes when you find yourself saying, you know, Russ Roberts, that guy is. He's incredibly talented. He's so good at what he does. I just admire this show. I admire what you've written. And I, and, and I remember, you know, I've actually said this about, about you and the things that you've written because I really do admire it. And it gives an intense satisfaction because it, it's a little – it's like a little death. <laughs> it's a little death of one's pride and envy. And, and unless a leader is willing to die a little bit, that leader will not be motivating and will not – will simply not be an adequate leader. So one of the things I recommend to students and I recommend to myself and I try to live up to is that I'm always going to be the leader who spends a lot of time admiring the people in the ensemble, but authentically admiring the people in the ensemble for what they do. Yeah, uh, well, I appreciate those kind words, which I know are just an example. But um, <laughs> uh, for, the sake no, of, for the sake of discussion, <laughs> wait, what's interesting, of course, is that 
you know, I had a chemical reaction, even though I didn't want to. Uh, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's the way we are as, as, as human beings. But, you know, some people would say, actually, it's better to be pride, to have pride and envy because it motivates you as the, you know, when you withhold it, it, it goes back to the, the Meister came to my house story. Right. right? The, the, uh, you know, my graduate advisor was, was Gary Becker and the highest praise I think I ever got from him, you know, I don't want to say what I got from him, but if, he would say a paper was, you know, was pretty good. That was like, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> you know, he, and, and I don't think that's the ideal way to, to live life. I, you know, I, uh, he was who he was, but uh, I think it's better to be more um, giving of compliments when they're earned. But when you do act that way, and Steve Jobs the same way, people desperately wanted that that positive word because it was scarce. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's certainly true. If something is scarce, you wanted the, you know, Gary Becker's congratulations where this doesn't suck yeah. um, and, and everything is relative. But I, I, you know, I don't think that's optimal leadership. I mean, in point of fact, everybody who's a who's an effective leader has to see him or herself as a leader. And that requires not envy. I think envy is always bad. As I think it was Aquinas or somebody who said that that envy is the only deadly sin that's not even fun. <laughs> you know, but but there is pride involved, and part of that has to do. And you don't want to be prideful to be sure, but you have to have an understanding that what you can do is great. The key thing is not letting it eat you alive, not letting it become the modus operandi, and that's why admiration really takes the edge off. It can take somebody who do, does have a good, healthy sense of ambition and self worth, and also remember that the the instantiation of my prideful tendencies to turn it into something that's great for humanity requires that I admire others because I simply can't do this alone. Let's talk about dignity. Uh, you talk about the dignity. We're going to now shift back to the theme of the book more directly. Uh, you talk about a dignity gap, and I've become a little bit obsessed with this issue because as economists, I, my, you know, my joke is um, there's, there's no variable for dignity in the data set. And so economists <laughs> just don't even... So it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It really doesn't. It's it's a. I think it's a it's a grotesquerie of our uh, of our profession. That stuff that doesn't exist. You know, stuff that we can't measure doesn't exist. But right. but it, it does exist. It's really important. Um, what do you mean by the dignity gap? And how do you think we might uh, get to a a world that had a little more of it for for some folks here in America? So. Dignity, the definition of dignity is to be worthy of respect. And you and I believe, and everybody listening to us believes, um, I would wager, that dignity is radically equal between all people. You know, this is one of the things, this is one of the things I, I most admire about libertarians, as a matter of fact, because there's this strong, strong sense of, of equal human dignity of every single person, zero exceptions, and that people need to live up to it and people need to respect it. And, you know, that's the, along the moral undercurrent I see of a lot of libertarian thinking, again, which has my complete admiration. The problem that we have is not that Anybody, very many people disagree that dignity is radically equal because people are worthy of respect. It's that people don't sense their dignity. And this becomes a public policy problem and a moral problem in our society very, very quickly is that certain people don't sense their dignity. They don't sense that they're worthy of respect. And so one of the questions that I ask, and and this becomes an empirical question that you and I as applied social scientists that we can measure, is, is why is it that some people lose their sense of dignity? And my reading of the data and the work that I've done over the years suggests to me that it's because they don't feel needed. 
they're they're they don't feel needed by society largely because their their sense of dignity is stripped away by not having a job for example or or having their family not need them or their community find them superfluous and unnecessary one of the most alarming things for me in modern life with the growth of of a very very large welfare state which, by the way, I, I celebrate insofar as that I want a safety net, just like Hayek did, but that the safety net sometimes metastasizes into a platform that, that says that certain people are charity cases and the rest of us are caretakers. And, and that what I regret about that is not the money. What I regret about that is the attenuation of the sense of human dignity. Since I believe it's radically equal, my moral purpose is to help people sense the radical equality of it in others and, in point of fact, in themselves. And the last thing that I want are public policy systems that would strip that away, which is why I have very, very strong views on on work, very strong views on inclusion in society. I have very strong views on issues like immigration. And it all comes down to not just the existence of equal human dignity, but the the purpose of finding an equal sense of human dignity. Yeah, the failure to recognize it often, to, to my mind, leads to infantilizing turn people into children, treating them as if they are not uh, morally capable of making their own decisions. Um, it just strikes me as, a, as, you, as I think you agree, the, the, wrong, the wrong path to go down. Do you think, what do you think of the role of agency is in this? And one of the things, I've been thinking a lot about the loss of, potential loss of work and to the, the reduction in male you know, labor force participation, the long-term trend. Um, it, it, a lot of it to me is a, is a loss of agency. And without agency, dignity seems really hard to recognize oneself. Yeah, sure. So dignity requires a couple of different things. One is to requires or sense of dignity requires that you have control, which is agency. And the other is to feel that you are not superfluous, which yeah. is another way of saying that, that you are needed in society. And so this is very, very important that – I mean when we think about what it means to be – you and I are dads. and We think it means to be good fathers. Good parenting is you know you don't make your kid feel unneeded and you don't make your – kid feel like he has no agency, that he has no control. Those are bad things. And, and you, we all know parents who have kind of done that. And their kids are goofed up. They get to college and these are the kids who are demanding the safe spaces and the because they've never had any risk in their lives and they've never felt like they have any control or they've never been able to fail on their own or they've never had any repudiation of their views. They become weak and soft. And you know this is kind of a form of abuse in my view. That's not good parenting. So as such, when we have an in local parentis relationship with our fellow citizens under any circumstances, even if it's as, as light as through a set of, of public policies that interact in people's lives just occasionally, it's not right for us to set up these policies in a way that would, would take people's agency away or in any way tell them that they're not needed or make them, that in point of fact, be less needed in society. You say a number of times, I used to believe this, I don't anymore, but you still believe it, so I'm going to let you defend it. Uh, you know, The people that I disagree with, we have the same goals, we just disagree on how to get there. And I wish that were true, but explain, I don't think it is so much. Tell me why you think it's true and what its implications are, and then I'll tell you why I don't. Yeah, no, um, and basically, for me to say, every person I meet has exactly the same goals as me. That commits a fallacy, which is the argumentum ad, ho ad hominem fallacy. It just happens to be the positive version of it. So I don't want to overstate this point. I just think uh, the point that I'd like to make is that 
almost inevitably, when you have an interlocutor who's on the other side ideologically from you, almost inevitably, that person actually shares more of your deep moral sentiments than you think. Almost inevitably. So it's not to say that the person sees the world in just the same way that you do and you're just, you know, fighting over something scraps. There might be some pretty profound differences in the moral outlook. And and you know, moral foundations theory is very clear. I mean, there are some moral foundations differences. You might be defining your moral foundations in pretty dramatically different ways. But one of the things that I found is that what people tend to do is to go at each other hammer and tongs about means and never start a conversation listening deeply about moral ends to see actually there might be some commonalities around which we have differences in the way that we can reach those moral ends. And so so I, I probably have overstated my point in the book, but that's the case that I'm trying to make. Is that is actually that uh, more in line with your thinking? Well, or do you still- here's, what, here's one of the problems I have, which is let's take the minimum wage, an example you use in the book. I think it's a really yeah. good example. Uh, I think the minimum wage is a terrible thing. I think it encourages um, benefits for relatively high-skilled, low-skill workers and punishes low-skilled, low-skill workers. So people with the hardest time to get into the labor force find this barrier to be the largest. And I find that – I find it simply immoral. I find it shouldn't – I don't think that's what my intellectual opponents want. Uh, And so I like to point that out. Right. Their reaction is, you're a pawn of the rich. Right. You're pro-business. You don't care about poor people. Now, I've said I did. I've said right. I care a lot about them. And I spend a lot of time arguing for revamping our, our – not a lot of time, but I argue whenever I can for educational change because I think that's the underlying cause of this problem, that people right. have skills that aren't being reward, don't have enough skill to, to be rewarded well in the marketplace – and yet I am dismissed, as I'm sure you have been many, many times, right. uh, because I'm obviously I'm heartless. So right. my opponent does not believe – people who know me well, I like to think, think I've, we share goals. People right. who don't know me go, oh, Hoover Institution. First they say Republican. I'm not a Republican at all. Um, I'm not a Democrat. <laughs> I'm not a very partisan person. Haven't been right. ever. Right. Uh, but they make, us, they make a set of, of – Assumptions, and um, they're not going to give me the benefit of the doubt. I'd like to show them my, ta- you know, my joke is, well, let me show you my tax return. Let me show you how much I give to charity. Would that help? Let me. You want to interview my wife? She'll tell you I'm a nice person. You know, right. <laughs> but I, it, I think a lot of us don't start there. They don't mm. think each. We don't respect each other's goals. Uh, we look at the darkest side of each other's goals. Uh, we assume on the right that the left wants to. You know, organized society is some kind of communist dictatorship, and the left looks at the right that they want to organize as a you know corporate fascist dictatorship, right? And that's where we've come to. Not just like eh, I don't think that'll work as well as you think it does, right? Yeah, no, I, I th- this is the same fallacy I'm talking about before, which is the ad hominem fallacy, yeah. and ad hominem is a very powerful tool. Which what people use under two circumstances. One, when they're trying to manipulate you or a conversation or lock down a base, which is what when politicians use it. And the other is when people are just extremely lazy thinkers. In other words, they're not that interested in making progress. They're simply interested in vanquishing a foe as quickly yep. as possible. Yep. And so, and those are circumstances that are not very. They don't. They're not conducive to to very good arguments. And you know, a lot of times when that's all people want to do, and so you know, you'd say sorry, but. 
that's not a conversation that's going to be very productive for me. I don't hate you, but I, I, you know, standing here and being abused, um, saying that I'm just a, a pawn of, you know, I just want to, I want to lower Charles Koch's taxes, um, is not a very productive thing to do. On the other hand, there are cases in which there are people who have simply never been exposed to Russ Roberts or Arthur Brooks's thinking about the minimum wage. And so when I have anything like an opportunity to talk to people that might, you know, I mean, all of life is is broken into in anything, whether you're selling Buicks or cheese or the American free enterprise system. There are four dispositions toward those products. Uh, you have true believers. You know, you and I are about democratic capitalism. There are persuadables, people who want to hear. They're hostiles who think it's stupid and evil. And they're apathetics. The apathetics, the lukewarm ones, are actually the hardest audience of all. But when the, when you're trying to get to the persuadables. The, one of the best ways to deal with it is to is to start by by looking at the virtues of the other side's arguments. And I have to say, you know, what about this minimum wage thing in particular? You know, it wasn't that long ago that I most of the arguments on the hard left that I heard they were they were not pro work at all. They were, they just weren't. They were you know talking about how how poor people and their work it was just it was undignified and terrible and wouldn't be better if they didn't have to work at all. And they were. And I would say, no, you don't understand. The basis of dignity is purpose and meaning, and that actually comes from productive activity, and work is the best way that we can actually get that done. So when I hear minimum wage arguments, as misguided as they are, and they are, I mean, look at my colleague Mike Strain's stuff, and it's just unambiguous that it cuts the bottom rungs off the ladder. It hurts the people at the margin the most, and it helps my you know, upper middle class kids the most. It's just it's just not a good policy. But at least the, the impetus for most persuadables – not just the pure ad hominem vitriol that you're talking about, but the persuadables is I want work to pay because work is good. And I want people to be able to support themselves and their families. And so, and so recognizing that that's the argument for a lot of people, or even just assuming that it is says, and you know, the problem is that this policy doesn't get to that objective very well. So let me explain another policy that might be just as expensive so I'm not worried about spending government money. I just don't want to hurt poor people. And it's amazing how you can inflect the conversation. It just takes a lot of, a lot of work and, and a lot of practice. Well, I'm going to criticize myself. I think you could criticize my view by saying, well, you used to say that it didn't help any workers, that hardly any, because the demand for labor was so elastic. Now you're admitting it's inelastic and you're falling back on this idea that, it, well, sure, it helps a lot of poor people, but but the poorest of the poor, it hurts. Right. And that's just your cover for you know advancing the agenda of the group you really care about, which is, say, businesses. So I think you – know, and there is a lot of evidence. I don't like to think it's reliable, but there is a lot of evidence that the minimum wage has relatively small costs relative to its uh, redistributive gains. Uh, what offends me is when people say it has no costs, which, yeah, sure. which I find – just bizarre. Yeah, no, in policy analysis, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that anybody in policy who says this relatively mainstream policy has all benefits and no costs yeah. <clears throat> or all, all costs and no benefits is selling you a bill of goods. Yeah. It's just it's, – it's not right. And so, of course, the minimum wage helps certain people, including some people that we want to help. The problem is that reliably, it most hurts the people we least want to hurt. And and we should have a kind of a, in my view, a kind of a Rawlsian ideal toward the poorest of the poor. Look, these, we are our brother's keeper, in my view. Um, we, we were not raised by wolves in this way. And, and I'm willing to have even more expensive policies if we can avoid doing that to the people who are most at the margin of society. Yeah, I don't really agree with that. 
Arthur, but I want to stick to the subject at hand. Uh, <laughs> but I appreciate the chance to get the phrase Rawlsian in here, uh, and that <laughs> I, that you're you're bringing it in, you're dropping it. Yeah. Um, I, I want to turn to something I don't think you talked about much, if at all, which is uh, tribalism. So I see a lot of our the rise of contempt is coming from a, a type various types of tribalism, and I see your book as a way of suggesting, well, we're part of a bigger tribe that you're ignoring, which is the American tribe, that we all really have similar core moral values. You say that explicitly at, at, at one point. And that if we can get more pleasure from being part of that bigger tribe, maybe we could dampen down, tamp down the um, the tribalism, the inter-American rather than the uh, – the American uh, unifying tribal feeling. Yeah. And I don't know if I think that's possible anymore. Mm. I don't. And, and here's, this is just hard to talk about because we, we have strong feelings. Uh, all of us do, but I would say it this way. Uh, do you really think there's a shared set of values across the left and the right today about what America should and could be? In other words, Forget the fact that make America great again is a loaded slogan. Forget the fact that it's associated with one, uh, for better or for worse, one party and one person right now. And forget the word again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's just say make America great or love our country, which is a theme of your book. What are we going to rally around? What shared values do you think we have? Because I see so many now across the political spectrum we don't share. Yeah, no, it's easy, it's easy to find the stuff that we don't share right now because we're focusing most on the stuff that we don't share. And this is it, it, ordinarily what happens when when social scientists, they call it you know, bonding social capital. Typically, it happens oppositionally. Who am I? Well, I'm not sure, but let me tell you who I'm not. And you know that that's ordinarily what we find in, t- in times of typical of really big and bad polarization, uh, which we ha- obviously we see today. <laughs> However, the other you know the same literature and social capital f- t- finds that that bridging social capital, which talks about uniting stories, and this is sort of the national myth or the myth of a people which unites them around common moral values, can be so much more powerful. It's it takes more work, and it takes better leadership, and it takes a certain sort of ecosystemic set of circumstances to be sure, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book is to try to urge that along a little bit. But but what the social scientists like Robert Putnam and 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 Francis Fukuyama and others have found is that, that it can be just just way more powerful and enduring under the circumstances. So your question is is the right one. Um, you know, is it yeah, possible to actually get that back? I mean, what is the story anymore? And you know, when when I when I talk to people, it, you know, and, and again, when you're doing 175 talks a year, a lot on college campuses and everything from conservative activist events to you know, rooms full of social workers. I mean, I have right, right, left, and center, and hard left and hard right along the way. I don't find anybody who objects to the idea of the radical equality of human dignity and the limitlessness of human potential. I just, I don't. I don't. I don't get. I don't get people rebelling against the idea that those, those are things good. are good. Yeah, those are good. And, and, you know, that's the reason I came into the free enterprise movement in the first place. This is one of the things that, you know, my wife, who's an immigrant, she just loves this country so much because 
because we kind of believe these things. And, you know, some people try to get them in a way that I think is wrong and I think that is unproductive. And I think a lot of our postmodern conversations that are about identity politics on the left and the right are just really, really misguided on that. But deep down, most of the people that I'm talking to, they're making dignity arguments and they're making human potential arguments. And, you know, those, man, Russ, I can work with that stuff. Okay, so let me let me ask it a different way, uh, and I'll put us back in our think tank hats for a second. Uh, at one point in the book, you mentioned it's, it's a very casual paragraph about the differences between liberals and conservatives. It's not the point of the paragraph, but in passing, you mention it. You mentioned things like their differences in in, ta- in their view of taxation, the size of the military budget, regulation, and certainly those are things that that liberals and conservatives are going to disagree on. But they strike me as the issues that most people aren't angry about these days. Mm. They may disagree, but what they're angry about are those identity issues. They're angry about, I would describe it as nationalism versus cosmopolitanism, which I think is really the challenge to implementing what you just said, which is beautiful, but in a national setting is going to, is gotten harder. Much and, harder, yeah. And so, one, what do you think of that, that fact, or excuse me, that claim that, that the Dividing issues have changed in the last five to ten years, and also obviously in Europe as well, not just in America. And um, well, let's start with that. It's I think it's right. Um, you know, the, the issue that people will really come to blows over um, reliably is abortion in the United States, and and part of the reason that that's the case is because there's just no. It's hard to find any middle ground. Middle, middle ground is a really tricky thing to find. Ironically, most people have a kind of a middle ground view on abortion. But as Megan McArdle has written really compellingly about, when you when you think clearly about abortion, it's uh, you're on a razor's edge in a way. And so you kind of fall off to one side or the other. The only way to maintain the middle ground is to not think very much about it. And so that's an issue that has really t- sucked up a whole lot of oxygen. And so that requires, you know, for those of us that are in public policy leadership positions and that are trying to bring people together, that, that's a big challenge, you know? So what of an, a situation like the abortion issue should we be trying to control on the supply side and what should we be actually trying to change on the demand side, for example? And I think there's actually a much bigger role than we've given credit for to policy analysts that have social science techniques and economists who actually use the vernacular and understanding of economics to structure the arguments. I mean, in other words, Russ, there's still a role <laughs> for what you and I learned when we suffered through our PhDs in, in this kind of argument. Um, on the big sort of nationalism yeah, versus the cosmopolitan tougher. issue. That's where I mean, this, immigration comes in. It's really where it does. just your whole identity of what, what's yeah. your role in life. Are you just a person who happens to live within the borders of the United States or are you, yeah. quote, an American? And I think a lot of people are increasingly willing to be the former and not the latter. I know. And, you know, I don't I don't. I don't know, Russ. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the right answer to this. I think when I look back in the times in, in the – during my lifetime and, and before, when this was less of a problem, virtually always it was because the pie was growing fast enough that people weren't competing for scarce resources in the same way. You find that people compete for resources using nationalist and cosmopolitan language more when they feel like somebody else is going to get their pieces of the pie. 
and and that's especially true in the period after um, after financial crisis. So you saw that pretty famous paper in the European Economic Review from those three guys who teach at the University of Berlin that looked at 800 elections over 120 years in 20 advanced countries, and they find that that uh, financial crisis in the in the succeeding decade causally, according to the way that they were doing the analysis, has a 30% influence on the increase in the voter share for populist parties and candidates, which is typically, in populism, in at least in Western societies, typically coalesces around cosmopolitanism versus nationalism. That's how the, the, na- the, the, the populist issues tend to break. Yeah. And what, what that suggests is that I don't know how to sort this out unless we can, unless we can get more growth and more prosperity and more abundance I think that we can live in more harmony in the United States when we have that. And I realize that's an incredibly unsatisfying answer. Uh, but it's right now, I, I say this with appropriate humility, Russ, I think it's the best answer I've got. Well, it's a scary answer because right now we have unemployment under 4%. It's true that it might understate the actual health of the labor, overstate the health of the labor market. But economy's growing. Uh, and we're still angry with each other. If we were at 10% unemployment, I think maybe we'd have a civil war. Uh, which is, you know, the kind of thing I'm worried about as a worst case, uh, as a worst case scenario. I'm going to give you a different answer. Uh, it's not, it's not much of an answer, but at least we get to reflect on it. And I think your book is a step in the in the right direction. And it, uh, we had Jill Lepore on the program talking about sort of the American narrative, and we don't we don't really have one that's so embraceable right now. Someone needs to put that narrative forward. Uh, it might be a, a great politician. Uh, it might be a great thinker. It might be um, just something that emerges as a as a way of thinking about what it means to be an American. And you know, your book is 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 in that genre. I would say it's. Wouldn't it be great if we all thought it was a good idea to love our intellectual enemies, the people we disagree with? And I think uh, that cultural norm, which is not the norm right now, if it could mm. become the norm, if it became something that we said, you know, for example. Toleration is, is an American norm these days, much more than it was 70 years ago, and that's had wonderful effects and some not-so-wonderful effects. It's not, a, it's not a free lunch. But the idea of embracing ideological diversity, embracing – and we haven't had a chance to talk about it, but you talk a lot about the value of competing ideas, and I think that's really important, and it has to be uh, something we rally around. And I think people are increasingly thinking, yeah, maybe this this – monocultural idea of, you know, my idea is right and no one else's. Maybe that's not a good thing, even if I'm right. So yeah. I think to the extent we can get people to to share those values, I think maybe we can have a, a shared story. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. And that's, you know, changing culture is an institutional solution. Um, and I'm all about institutional solutions. You know, we, we need better, <laughs> we need to change culture, change values. We need better politicians. We need better policy. We need better capitalism, whatever we're talking about, uh, on the basis of some of these, some of these ideas. Uh, one of the things that worries me is that I think that it, that tends to be operationalized with, you know, at a, at a scale that's not, that's not scalable. You know, it, it, what do I mean by that? I, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are trying to bring left and right together to have open dialogue and appreciate each other more. That's, it doesn't just doesn't seem scalable to me. And the reason I wrote the book that I did, Love Your Enemies, is because, you know, it's reflecting a lot on how King changed culture. You know, a lot of the, you know, the tolerance and, and love people are supposed to have for each other. This came from, I mean, Martin Luther King is the, the godfather to a lot of a lot of that thinking that's enriched your life and my life so very much. I mean, he's one of the heroes of all of us because he's 
our lives are better and happier because <laughs> of the way he thought. He was fundamentally a personal revolution guy. I mean, we tend to think, well, that, you know, that a, the civil rights division of the Department of Justice was largely guided by his principles of, no, I mean, maybe, but, you know, really the impact that King had on our society is that what he taught people on how, when he talked about, you know, the, the gospel of St. Matthew chapter five, verse 44, the reason, you know, that's at the tip of my tongue is because that's the title of my book, Love Your Enemies. He said, you know, when you hate your enemy, you cannot redeem your enemy. He called people to personal revolution to say, revel in the deep satisfaction that comes from loving your foe, from the satisfaction that comes from the intellectual humility that you were talking about before. So I think to it in a certain way, yeah, yeah, let's get more institutions. Let's change culture on these lines. But I think to change culture, you got to make love cool. And the way that you do that is showing people that they actually can be, A, more persuasive because nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. B, they can be happier because the science could not be clearer that when you love your enemies, you will be a happier person in the long run. And C, if you'd like 93% of Americans, you don't like how divided we become as a country, you hate how divided we become as a country, you can at least in a tiny way be part of the solution to that and take some satisfaction from it. That's, I guess, why I wrote my book. Yeah, and that's my personal motto, too. I may, I may not be changing the world, but I'm doing one. I'm not going to revolutionize the world, but that's a really dangerous idea anyway. I'm just going to try to, one step at a time, make it a little bit calmer, yeah, respectful, uh, humble, if I can. And it's, you, um, you can change. You might change. Might not be able to change the world, but you can change Russ. I can change me. I can try. It's not easy, by the way. Yeah, tells I know. You something. Yeah, uh, me too. Me too. Your, your title is from the New Testament. You're a religious person. Um, the Old Testament uh, exhorts to love your neighbor as yourself, which is, you think might be a little easier than loving your enemies, but still incredibly difficult. Can we make any progress on this air, on this without religion? Uh, is your book to some degree a uh, a religious book despite its lack of religious content? And do you see the decline in religion as a challenge to implementing your vision? Yeah, I, I, I actually don't. I mean, I think that the, the, the ideals of a good society based on principles of solidarity – and, and brotherhood and, and caring for one's neighbor. These were really put forth in a very radical and subversive way by American founders who were pretty non-religious. I mean, when you look at, you know, Thomas Jefferson, he, you know, takes an exacto knife and cuts out all the miracles and makes his own Bible that was basically a, a, a guide to secular ethics. I mean, no joke, he did that, the Jefferson Bible. Um, what he was basically saying is that this stuff is not necessarily religious. It's goodness. It's written on the human heart. Now you might say, okay, okay, you're falling back on natural law and natural law is fundamentally a theistic phenomenon. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe, but on the other hand, you know, you started our conversation um, talking about habits and virtues. You're an Aristotelian. You know, Thomas Aquinas got most of the ideas we're talking about in this conversation from Aristotle. Aristotle existed before Aristotle was not was neither Jewish nor Christian. There's a lot that we can do. Um, I don't think that we have to despair about the fact that people are less traditionally religious than they've been in the past. I think that's a separable problem if you think it's a problem at all. Personally, I think that life is better when we have our when we have a religious faith. I'm I, my religious faith is literally the most important thing in my life. And 
and I want to share it. I want people to have it. But what we're talking about today, there's nothing antagonistic about not being religious or even or traditionally religious or not religious at all in the things that we're talking about. I think this is what we want. I think it's what our hearts desire. I don't mean to alarm listeners, but I think you're suggesting that I'm something of an Aristotelian. It's probably the the most insulting thing a guest has ever said to me. Um, I've come <laughs> Sorry, to be- Russ. <laughs> I'm not taking it too badly. I'm I'm still um, I'm still respectful of you, Arthur. But I I think uh, I've actually come to believe that it's a uh, a lot of Aristotelian thinking poisoned uh, Judaism. Probably some Christianity along the way, and maybe um, our secular culture as well. There are many good things that came from Aristotle. I don't want to suggest otherwise, <laughs> but uh, I've lately been alarmed at his um, influence, but definitely another topic. <laughs> this uh, is our, our worst disagreement of the whole exactly, episode. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think we need a second uh, conversation just on Aristotle. Uh, let's close with a, a simple idea that your book uh, closes with. Uh, you say the following. Uh, you, you boil it down to, you, you, you say, let, let me just boil this down to a really simple set of points. You say, quote, Go find someone with whom you disagree, listen thoughtfully, and treat him or her with respect and love. The rest will flow naturally from there. Yeah. And um, what does it mean to flow naturally from there? It does not mean that that person is going to embrace you or say that you're right or say I love you or treat you with any sort of love and respect. What I'm talking about is the interior revolution that comes from there. Remember, the goal is not to change the world, although that would be nice. It's not realistic. The goal is to change you. My goal is to change me. So basically, if I want to do anything that changes me and I want to live up to my own best values, it starts when I'm talking to somebody with whom I disagree and and, and listening to that person and listening with love and respect because that's the standard to which I have to live up every single day. What will flow naturally from there? Well, what will flow naturally from there is, is, is the right alignment of my own desires and my own heart. And it may be something good in the other person as well. I can't promise. My guest today has been Arthur Brooks. His book is Love Your Enemies. Arthur, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you for your show and thank you for your work. Um, I think that you've helped a lot of people over the last, how many, 650 hours? Something like that. So um, <laughs> you have my admiration. Thank you, Arthur. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>